the Chapel Hill Public Library, this is Recollecting Chapel Hill. History from the inside out and bottom up. Looks just like a beautiful little wooded lot with a few stones in it and sort of a cul-de-sac. So you would never know any graves were here. It is it's ironic that hate follows you to the grave, to death. Once you're in the cemetery business, once you choose that, then that's forever and ever and ever. I'm Danita Mason Hogan's community historian. Today, I want to welcome fellow historian and podcast producer Mandela Young to the microphone. Hey, Mandela. Hi, Danita. <laughs> I'm glad you're here. I get so in my feelings over this whole deal about cemeteries. I just think that the way you come in and the way you leave this world is important. And I remember when I was in Greensboro and in Chapel Hill, I used to do free obituaries for people who couldn't afford to have a nice obituary. So I taught myself how to do desktop publishing and to format obituaries so that everybody could leave with a little bit of dignity, even if they couldn't afford to do that. So this episode just gets me so in my feelings about how people were treated in life and in death. So forgive me if I get in my feelings no, <laughs> about this. It's totally appropriate. One of the reasons we wanted to look at cemeteries in the first place is because each headstone is kind of like a personal monument. You know, it's a monument to that person who's buried there. And the differences between them can tell us a lot and what they say and what they don't say. Who we choose to remember and how we choose to remember them really is significant. It means a lot. That's why this is definitely bottom up history. So I've actually been living in Southern Village for a little while now. And there's a cemetery that's just two blocks down from Market Street, which is the main commercial street. You kind of walk two blocks down and there's this block-sized park called Arlen Park and there's a little trail that goes through it. And if you walk through the trail, you eventually get to the top of the hill where there's this small family cemetery from, you know, people who lived here 100 years ago. That's where they're buried. But it's always just kind of struck me because Southern Village is a relatively newer development in Chapel Hill. It was built in the late 90s. But there's this reminder of the past and the people who used to live on that land. At some point, I realized that, you know, I didn't know that much about the people who were buried there. And I started asking some of the neighbors, the people who lived in the area. Yeah, so all I know about the graveyard in Southern Village is if you walk up the hill in Arlen Park on that main drive, Arlen Park, you run into that square, which is forested, and there's some nice trails in there, and you'll eventually run into some headstones. Yeah, that was a complete surprise. You're just, let's see what's back over here. There's gravestones. (laughs) Surprise. There's a one-block square park, and you can walk for quite a ways in that park. And then eventually you find the graveyard. It used to be in much better shape. It's kind of trashed now, and apparently it was since Southern Village was built that um, some, they don't know who, 
you know, went and just on a weekend night broke a bunch of the tombstones. It's the Purifoys who are buried there, is that right? Um, which I guess is where the name came from, the street, which is pretty, Purifoy Street, it's um, off of Columbia by Mary. I really wanted to dive into this question of how do cemeteries preserve and reflect a community's history, and in what ways do they fall short? So I thought that maybe to start, we would go with Chapel Hill's newest cemetery, and Danita is pretty familiar with it too. Yeah. Chapel Hill Memorial Cemetery is where most of my family's uh, buried on my mother and my father's side. And it's just so interesting to me to go back to that cemetery and look at all the people that I've known throughout my life. We brought in Ernest Dollar, the former executive director of Preservation Chapel Hill, and he showed us around Chapel Hill Memorial Cemetery. Certainly, as you look out, it's a sea of granite headstones. I always feel so at home here, mm-hmm. just because so many of my relatives are born here, and I know that I will also be buried here. So there's a deep sense of coming home when I come to these cemeteries. It was, he was asking me about family names. You can just walk through here and, and point out tons of Orange County names. Yes. I see the uh, Burnets, and I'm related to the Burnets, of course. Um, Edwards. Those, um, I think, maybe somewhere around here where my great-grandparents were buried. Um, the Gears. Mm-hmm. Bynums. The Bynums, for sure. Let's I see, the Boucher's. Mm-hmm. I saw some Strayhorns. Strayhorns. Mm-hmm. Uh, Williams. There's so many people here that, um, and so many people who have passed that no, it's almost like a, a reunion. It's a family reunion all in one place. It really is. So. You know whose um, stone I found? Miss Susie Weaver. Oh, the and, Weaver Singers. Yes, she was a freedom singer, and she was uh, Mr. Bynum Weaver, who was a mortician. She was his wife. What's interesting is one of the reasons that it's difficult to find some of these plots like my grandmother's is that they normally did not have raised headstones. They had um, plates that were kind of embedded in the grass, so it's a little bit more difficult to find that. But Miss Susie had a headstone, and I guess that's because she was kind of, you know, funeral royalty. interesting to see all of the uh, headstones from people who have contributed so much to Chapel Hill. And they were so large in life, and now they're um, kind of still. And uh, you need maybe a little remembrance or a reminder of what they did for Chapel Hill and who they were. This is a headstone for our Doug Clark, otherwise known as Douglas Palmer Clark Sr. So you guys remember Animal House, the movie with the, the, the African-American band? That was modeled after his band. So Doug Clark and High Nuts were like the party band for American colleges back in the day. 
incredible. Traveled all up and down the East Coast, playing all these events. And when I went to go interview him, I was like, oh man, I'm gonna hear some body stories about playing those clubs. What it turned out to was how they would survive playing at these segregated colleges across the Deep South. It was fascinating. And uh, it's got a little drum set with his face etched into the face of the headstone. And it's so apropos for a man who spent his entire career, entire lifetime, entertaining with rock and roll music. And then you see right here, next to him is Miss Rebecca Clark, who was just such a stalwart in the community in terms of um, social justice work. And again, it's interesting to, to try to, as, as old Orange County names has integrated with all of the new, new arrivals, Chapel Hill had always remained a village for a long time. And it's not until 70s, 80s, 90s, we see an incredible influx of uh, a lot of people coming to this area. And so again, when they come here, they die here, they remain here. So you just look out and some of these names I can't pronounce. I think when we were walking through, you could kind of see the diversity just through the languages that were represented on the headstones. Yeah, I just thought that was so cool. I mean, you saw different languages. You saw Mandarin. I think I saw some written in Arabic. And what was also really interesting is that the different cultures were also represented in terms of how people chose to honor their dead with a little section for flowers or you know, a little cup for water, I thought was really, really interesting. And that is something that is fairly new, you know, and happened within the most recent years. But I think it's a great representation of the diversity of Chapel Hill now. So next we went to a cemetery that kind of showed us who it was who built Chapel Hill and the people from the town's past and history a little bit more. So we went over to the old Chapel Hill Cemetery. It's the cemetery on campus. It used to be called the College Graveyard, and it was founded with UNC. It's very interesting to see the differences between the Memorial Cemetery and Chapel Hill, where, like it or not, everybody's buried together. And it's very much um, a mixed culture, a mixed race cemetery. But if you go on campus, the story is quite different. That's right. Again, so we are in the old Chapel Hill Cemetery. It was the very first cemetery for the university and for the town. And this is where everybody who was who's who in Chapel Hill was buried before the 50s. I mean, you've got university presidents, students, famous soldiers, famous golfers, famous artists, movers and shakers of this town are here. So the entire city's history is in one place. The old Chapel Hill Cemetery is kind of like the burial place for the old Chapel Hill royalty, almost. That's yeah. what somebody said about it. And it's very close to the middle of campus. So most people who have been through campus have, have at least seen that cemetery. I walk through here on my way to and from the gym to play basketball. So I regularly walk through here and it's, it's wonderful. Me and a couple of friends, like last summer we came, we'll walk around and look at all the graves, look how old they are. Well, I walk by here and I see names on markers. I think that prominent people are 
buried here. I assume that Bill Friday's buried here. I know that Charles Geralt, who was a journalist, is buried here, that sort of thing. You know, it's very historic, obviously. It's been with the university since the 1800s, at least. Paul Green, along with Prof Koch, very influential time of Chapel Hill's history. He was an incredible, talented writer, um, served in World War One, came to Chapel Hill to write. That's Ernest Dollar again. So Paul Green really tried to write across the color line, uh, which is fairly progressive for the time when he wrote back in the 50s and 60s. And so um, James Baldwin came to visit Paul Green, and as during his stay at Paul Green's house, Green kept looking worse and worse and run down, and then Baldwin suddenly realized that it was Green that would get up during the night and patrol around the house with a baseball bat to try to keep the Klan to coming and grab Baldwin. So it's just an incredible story about, you know, summarizes Chapel Hill's very interesting relationship with the race. Harriet Berry, the mother of good roads. North Carolina has evolved into the 20th century, still lagged behind a lot of its other states. So Harriet Berry took it on herself to basically lobby for North Carolina to develop good roads. So they went from last to first, largely through her campaigning in the North Carolina legislature. So this is William Mead Prince, a well-known artist from Chapel Hill. He coined the phrase, a southern part of heaven. Now there are some headstones here for soldiers that were never recovered. The stone serves in place of that body. So, I mean, this is a whole, just a collection of memories here in this place. And that's largely what these headstones do, is just to remind us what the lives of these people So if you step over here, I'll show you one of my favorites. So we were involved in working with the Strayhorn family when I was at the Preservation Society that a lady came to us and said, um, I need some help fixing up my house. My grandparents built it after they were emancipated. We need some help taking care of this house. And I said, well, you know, we, we just don't have money to give away for every house and stuff. And the more I talked to this lady, um, she had worked at um, Chapel Hill Pediatrics. And then it dawned on me that she'd probably see me naked more times than my wife because I was a child that went to Chapel Hill Pediatrics. And the more I talked to this lady, I was very excited to help her with her house. And her name was Dolores Clark. And these are her grandparents. And so as we started to get into the story of her house, which stands in Carborough, an incredible story came about that in the 1940s before she died, Nellie did an interview with the newspaper and recorded her whole life history. And on top of that, some of the photographs they have from that family who built that house are just incredible. So you've got a really important family. It's incredible to see how Headstones like this still retain so many of these family stories and memories, but just looking at headstone, it doesn't give you the full depth and breadth of that experience. Are we entering into the um, African-American part now? Yeah, and you notice that. The wall of separation. That's it. Yeah, my mom used to work over at the undergraduate admissions office at Chapel Hill, which is right down the road from the cemetery. So I saw the cemetery a lot when I was coming up. And I always noted the huge stones and the markers for the cemetery. And I never really noticed until fairly recently that there were slave cemeteries there. If you take the majesty of these big stones for the white folks who ran the university and juxtapose them, with 
the division of the slave cemeteries is really quite striking. It's, it's very interesting to me because the totality of the cemetery represents to me a truth that we like to forget or maybe not like to talk about, but the truth is there. And it's it kind of shows that full breadth of Chapel Hill history, too. Exactly. Because, you know, there are, there are people who were enslaved buried on the African-American side, but it also shows the legacy of Jim Crow. Minister Robert Campbell talks a little bit about that, too. He remembers being a boy, you know, wanting to visit the graves of relatives that he had who are buried on campus. But because of the racial atmosphere here in the 60s, it wasn't necessarily a welcome place for him. It was a place that we used to visit when we went on campus. Some of us had knowledge that some of our ancestors were engraved there. And so we used to go down and see could we find the names that was associated with our name and how our name may be associated with other families that we live with or live around. We wasn't too welcome to be on campus in the 60s. And so we was kind of uh, rebels in a way. Dilsey Craig. I'm 60 years a slave, chiefly in the home of Dr. James Phillips, whose grandchild erects this in grateful memory. And then it gives a quote, well done, good and faithful servant, in quotation marks. So Lori Medford has been working on the Chancellor's Task Force for Campus History, and she's been researching the university's relationship to slavery. And she specifically wanted to point out that headstone to me, just for, I guess, the relationship between enslaved folks, the people who were enslaving them, and how that's all reflected in the stories that the headstones tell. I don't know, Mandela. I know when I when I um, leave this earth, I know that I'll at least be with my family in Chapel Hill. And I don't know how much of an honor it would have been to be buried with a family that she was in servitude with, even in death. And that's something that you do see occasionally as a, you know, a former master or somebody of a former master's family of a former enslaver's family will put the stone up and they get to control that person's narrative when they're dead. Wow. So, and her story, I mean, that at least what we know of her from this lives because this is a stone that survives well. It's not a wood marker, which a lot of markers, you know, were wood or a type of stone that would decay over time. But she never got to probably choose what it said. The ground here has settled more. It doesn't really sink. Mm. Um, but you'll see, like, see where those flowers grew up down there? That's where a casket was that caved in. And so in these old cemeteries, you do get the, like, this wavy sort of-ness going on. And there's been different approaches to that because on one hand, could be a trip issue. On the other hand, it shows where somebody was and there may not even be a stone there. So Ernest Dollar kind of pointed out that 
a lot of times in old cemeteries and specifically old black cemeteries, the people being buried ne- didn't necessarily have all of the money for a, you know, a nice granite headstone kind of like Dilsey Craig had. So oftentimes a rough uncut stone, a field stone would be used as a headstone instead. Yeah. Didn't Ernest tell us a way to distinguish between just a regular rock and one of those field stones? I think there there are some clues, but I think you kind of have to use them all together. There might be a headstone and a footstone, and if it's like about a body length apart and one is slightly smaller than the other, that could be an indication. And, you know, Lori Medford talks about this kind of sunken ground where a casket caved in. Mm -hmm. And if you see both of those things together, then that, you know, definitely points you to a certain conclusion that it's probably a grave. That's really interesting, Mandela. Yeah, that's really interesting for those of us that want to find out where our ancestors are. Yeah, it's kind of like a lot of clues all stacked up together. Like if, if you see this pattern in kind of in a line, then that's an indication that's a grave site. There's, there's nothing that makes those rocks different from any other rocks. In some ways, it's impossible to know whether the rocks that are still sitting in that cemetery are in the right place. Yeah, that struck me. Yeah, that struck me. Can you tell the difference between just regular rocks and rocks that were used to denote it? That's just it, you know. Again, how many of these, the headstones, ended up in this rock wall, you know? It's just so sad that we've lost who these people were. I mean, that's the great tragedy of slavery is to condemn these people, even in attorney to anonymity. So that's one reason we really want to at least bring something back, to at least say someone was here. So what's that process like to try to identify where these folks were buried and what cemeteries, that, where they were? I don't even think at the time where they had these cemeteries had any of those records. We worked with the Cemeteries Advisory Board to do a couple of different studies. One of them was called an electrical resistivity testing. The other one was a ground penetrating radar. So the ground penetrating radar, if you imagine a baby carriage with a box on it and they push it, and this shoots a beam down into the ground and looks for disturbed soil. So they can actually start to make a map of it. Now the electrical resistivity is that you imagine taking two copper poles and sticking them in the ground and they shoot a current between them and they, they measure the speed of that, that current. Faster means it's undisturbed because soil is still packed. But if you're digging it up, put a coffin in, put the dirt back in, it's gonna flow slower because it's not as compact. So that's when we found about 400 bodies on the black side that had just been just totally lost to time. Um, we also ran across in the early 80s, I think, that during a big football game, of course, people were parking up in the black section of the cemetery. So this section in particular has seen so much vandalism in the cemetery as a whole, but this area in particular, that they might have had headstones at some point and, you know, Jim Crow might have taken them away. So I really had no idea that, like, a rock or a field stone could be used as a headstone until I started working on this project. And it it kind of reminded me of something that I remember one younger resident of Southern Village telling me back when I was talking to neighbors and neighborhood residents. 
she grew up in Southern Village and she kind of remembered this childhood rumor or uh, childhood ghost story that was circulating amongst all of her friends when she was growing up there. There were all of these rumors that would go around about, first of all, the tombstones that were there, and second of all, the kind of rocks surrounding the tombstones. And we would come here at night, and people really believed, I at least really believed that it was a haunted location, and that the rocks surrounding the tombstones were markers of spots where enslaved people were buried. And so, like, for a long time, I was really scared to come. Like, I wouldn't come here at night. I was like, this is haunted. I'm not messing with that. And I don't know why everybody's testing it. And I sadly, like, I never looked up this family. I really was so scared of this place. So I, I don't know anything about them. So she kind of said that. And when, when I first heard it, I assumed, as she probably does now, that, you know, it was just this childhood ghost story that people were passing around to scare their younger siblings. Um, but after talking to a few other residents, I started to think that it might not be that far from the truth. There's two graveyards in Southern Village, and there's one that's the big one, and that's where the Purifoys have their headstones and it's set up nicely and someone goes in and manicures or, you know, keeps the path clear. And then, not far from there, on another block, there's another graveyard that has some markers, but they're not clearly marked, and there's no pathways, and nobody keeps up that graveyard. And what I had heard is that that was the slave graveyard, which I don't know if that's true or not true, or if this was, perhaps they were servants. Anyway, that's the rumor, is that that's the slave graveyard. Nobody takes care of it. When I look back on what I actually understood about what this place is or might be. Like, it's kind of sad and embarrassing that at a school district that, like, I considered to be a really good district and I learned a lot from, like, I had such a clear misunderstanding or lack of information about kind of the history of the place I'm living, and I still do. It's not too hard to get in here if you don't mind looking a little suspicious. Where I am right now, you can see three clear headstones. Here's Fanny, wife of Reuben Harris, born October 10th, 1855, died March. March 2nd, 1904. I'm gonna cross over and see what the next one says. The stone's clearly been cracked in the middle and someone must have repaired it at some point. From where I'm standing, there are a few deep depressions that are even lined up. So I'm thinking those might be more graves Looks like four in a row. And then there's a big, deep depression right next to Lizzie Harris's tombstone. Here's the third clear headstone. It says, Mother, Lizzie Harris, June 4th, 1863, 
December 25th, 1925. Gone, but not forgotten. There's also a small metal signpost next to two of the graves. It looks kind of like something you would see in an arboretum. There's actually a similar metal marker in one of the depressions, which I think can confirm my theory that this is a grave. I have to pull it out from the dead leaves, and even then it doesn't really stand up straight. There's a little paper inside, and it says booze, blank months, blank days. I can't quite read the date. But if this is a grave, that probably means that there is one here, again another with this depression, three, potentially four more just in this line alone. Of course, it's really hard to tell. All of this land is pretty uneven. Now that I'm noticing the depressions in a line, I think I'm seeing field stones too. There are three more extending from where I'm standing, also all in a line. And that could be a footstone at the end of this impression here. And so we try to tell some of our younger people, hey, this high, if you're out there in the woods rock walking and you stumble across these stones and they are lined up like this, that's a grave. And so it's mentioned in song, it's mentioned in folklore that the stones had a significance. One of the greatest left-handed um, guitar player, Lovey Cotton, she sings about a song that when she died, put the head rock at the, at the head of her, her grave, that I, she may rest in peace. Bury me by the north track so I can hear that train when it come back. From the Chapel Hill Public Library and the town of Chapel Hill, I'm Danita Mason Hogans, and I'm Molly Luby, and I'm Mandela Young, and this is Recollecting Chapel Hill. Hill.